I'm just going to read the verse I read last week. The first verse. We looked at the first word last week. And that was the word Paul. And we're going to look at the rest of it this week. So we're not going to go through the Romans word by word. That will take us forever. But we are going to press on tonight. <coughs> Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now the question I want us to ask ourselves tonight, as a church, as individuals, is why should we bother studying this epistle of Romans in the first place? Why should we even bother to do it? And why should we put so much stock on it? Now David said in his prayer that I have confidently stated that the book of Romans will change each and every one of us if we stick with it, if we listen and understand and take in what God is saying to us, then we will not be the same ever again. You know, and I've said that now since, we, since um, I sort of declared one Thursday night that we would be starting to look in the book of Romans, I have said and maintained that this is a very powerful word from God. And it's, a, it's so powerful that it will change us and make us unrecognizable from what we were before we started. Now I ask the question again. Why should we bother studying the epistle of Paul to the Romans? And why should we put so much stock on it? You know if you remember last week. We saw that Paul. When we looked at the word Paul. We saw that he has the qualifications to write such a book as this one. It's about the gospel. And it's the universal gospel. It's not a Jewish gospel or um, a pagan or a Gentile gospel. It's a gospel that God desires to go out into the whole world. To touch the Jews where they are and the Gentiles where we are. And we saw that Paul had the qualifications being a man of two worlds, Saul of Tarsus, a Jew from Tarsus, able to speak into the situation that affects both Jews with the word of God and Gentiles with the word of God. Now I want to tell you, before we go any further, that if he was to uh, sneak up to chapter 3 and verse 9, we would see that basically the Jew and the Gentile is suffering in the same boat. And there is basically not much difference between us. Chapter 3 and verse 9 says, What then? Are we better than they? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged that Jews, that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, that they are all under sin. You know, and that is the basic need, the universal need of, human, of humankind, whether Jew or Gentile, it makes no difference. Sin is our problem. And the book of Romans is going to address that problem. It's the problem of sin. It's a universal problem. But of course, we've come to it, as far as the book of Romans is concerned, from different positions. 
Paul is able to speak to the Jews. Now what about the Jews? Well the Jews have an advantage over the Gentiles. In that they are privy to the counsels of God. They are a nation that have been privileged to have God as their sort of founder. And as the, uh, uh, the person who brought them through, chose them in Abraham, brought them into being in Egypt, rescued them from the clutches of uh, Pharaoh, brought them through the, the wilderness years and into the promised land and has been with them ever since. Even when they backslid, he would send judges. When they backslid, he would send prophets. And he continued with them and showed them all the necessary things that is needed to have a relationship with God. All in types and shadows, of course. We have the blood of the lamb. We have the high priest. We have the tabernacle or the temple. They had a, a great advantage as to this problem of sin. Because they knew how God would deal with it. And they expected someone to come and do that on their behalf. So that's the Jews. And Paul had to speak to them in the light of that. And therefore he is able to refer to their Old Testament um, culture. And bring them in. That's why if you notice whenever Paul goes into uh, a new town. He will always go to a synagogue. In fact in the reading tonight. It says immediately Paul preached Christ to those in the synagogue. Why? Because he was able to refer them to the Old Testament uh, types and shadows of Christ. Now the Gentiles are a different kettle of fish. To the Gentiles there is no such uh, legacy that, that is left behind. They had, they were simply, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They were at the mercy of their own conscience. It's conscience that brings the Gentile into uh, the sphere of the cross. And therefore uh, Paul is able to speak to the Gentiles' hearts. He speaks to the minds of the, of the Jews and reminds them of something. He speaks to the hearts of the Gentiles and tells them of the Christ who has come to love them and save them. But of course the outcome is identical. And he comes again to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 this time where it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And therefore we saw last week that Paul is in the perfect position to make studied judgments upon both worlds, the Jewish world and the Gentile world. But again, I ask the question, is that enough to make it necessary for us, you and I, to undergo such an intense series of studies. Just because a man knows two worlds. Does that give him enough credential to hold us for the foreseeable future? Remember Alison was closing in prayer last week. And um, uh, Sophie asked her to close in prayer. And she talked about the, the studies that we were doing. And she was saying in the next... And like she was afraid to say years. I don't know if you noticed. Next few weeks, next few months. And I thought to myself, I'll say years. Because that's how long it's going to take. It's going to take years. To look at this part of the scripture. If we're, going to look, if we're going to look at it in a way that will bring understanding to us. You know, is, just because he's able to speak into a Gentile world and the Jewish world. Is that enough credentials for us to spend all this time? Looking at it. Now if you remember last week I mentioned that when Jesus cleansed the temple. 
in John chapter 2, the Jews didn't ask him why he did it. They asked him on whose authority they did it. He did it. You see, the Messiah was to come to cleanse the temple. That was one of his ministries. They were expecting someone to come and do that. So it, when it was being done, they didn't say why. They said, on whose authority? Whose authority are you doing? You and you, we must ask the similar question of the book of Romans. Not why Paul wrote this book, but on whose authority he wrote it. Because that's the most important thing. Who is Paul speaking for? Who is he speaking for? That's the question that we must ask ourselves tonight. You know, because if this isn't going to um, make any sense, then nothing else will. But if this makes sense, then everything else will. And that's why we've, um, I've just read that one verse. Because in this verse, not only we have this man's name, Paul, right? It's not like Hebrews. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? No one knows. Who wrote the book of Romans? Paul wrote it because he says so. Paul. And there is a threefold description that his name bears in this first verse. And I think it, this is the authority behind Paul's writing of the book of Romans. Listen to it, Paul. A born servant of Jesus Christ. That's one designation. Called to be an apostle is another. And separated to the gospel. So firstly then, what does it mean to be a bond servant of Jesus Christ? Why is he put that? And why is he put it first? You want straight away, you want us to stop our pussyfooting around with this word bond servant. And actually say what the word really means. And it really means a slave. Paul says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul was the slave. You know, what's more, he was proud to be called the slave of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've got a New King James Version in your hand, or if you've got a, an NIV in your hand, you will notice that they are embarrassed by the word slave. And they put in this word servant, which is a little higher up than a slave, or even a bond servant, which is a little bit more sort of culturally acceptable than, acceptable than the word slave. They are embarrassed by it. But Paul wasn't. Paul called himself a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he addresses himself as such in seven of his twelve epistles. I'm a slave. I'm a slave. I'm a slave. I'm a slave. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. This was a fact that Paul wanted to get out there into the public domain. There was no shame attached to him. There was no embarrassment attached to him. This was his boast. In fact, you tell us later on that he was once a slave to sin. But now he is a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants that to be understood. You know, I wonder how such a thought would go down with us in this place tonight. 
or in with Christianity as a whole. A slave. It's not a very nice word, is it? It's not a word that you, you'd want to sort of be attached to you. A slave. A slave. You know, it wouldn't do much for the ego to be called a slave. It wouldn't enhance my street cred. My pride would take a bit of a knock. A slave. Surely a slave is the lowest of the low. A slave has no rights of his own. A slave does the bidding of someone else, even to the detriment of himself and his own desires. I wonder if such a description would fit in with me and you. I wonder if such a description would fit in with our sophisticated, highly technological age that we belong to. Slaves. Slaves. Especially, I'm sure that uh, we've broken the yoke of slavery. You know, in this country, you know, we've known that slavery has been uh, forbidden, it's been prohibited, banned. We've broken the yoke of such an ancient, even a barbaric uh, idea of slavery. You know, especially slavery to a god. You know, it's unheard of, it's unthought of. But be that as it may, and society would recoil. Today, you know, there's been a couple of uh, instances in, in the news this last year or two of people making slaves of other people. There's young, one young man, I can't remember where it was, but he was, uh, he was uh, taken to a farm and he was made to serve for nothing for years and years and years until someone realized what was going on. And it's only this year that he's been saved or set free from slavery. No, you recoil. At the thought of being a slave. Well be that as it may. You want know, it's something perhaps. That we need to address in our own life. As we contemplate the, the phrase that Paul is using here. You want to allow the Holy Spirit to impress that upon you and I. You know as we think about our walk with God. Is that our relationship with God? Are we slaves? Have we lost our rights? And given them to Him? Are we the lowest of the low? And he is the highest of the high. We need to address that. But suffice it for us to understand. In the context of this book. That Paul was a slave. Paul was under orders. Or to put it stronger. Paul was under obligation. God said to Ananias. Tell him this is what I want. He didn't say this is what I'd like. This is what I want. I want him to do this, 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 and this. And I want you to tell them that he's going to suffer this, 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 and this. God was up front with his slave. And Paul gave his rights to God and became his slave and did his bidding and was under obligation to write this epistle. Now, ever since his experience on the road to Damascus, this epistle was on the cards. Listen to it. As he journeyed, he came near to Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around, around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, 
Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? There we can see where Paul became a slave. Changed his master as he lay on, in the dust on the road to Damascus. He got up. Someone totally different. Then he went down. And I was talking to my mother on Tuesday. About seeing very little radical conversions uh, in our day. Christian experience that will change people's lives. Transform their commitment. Or even alter their perspectives. Today it's almost like we add Christianity to what we've already got. And to what we already are. But not so with Paul. Paul went from total loathing of Christ. To submitted obedience. Like that. And it's very difficult to, to be able to point to any sort of example of that in today's world. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord. Lord. No, to, Jesus, to Paul... A few moments before this, Jesus was the imposter that he wanted to eradicate from the conversation of the whole of the Middle East. He had papers from the high priest to go and drag anybody who acclaimed the name of Jesus and take them to Jerusalem. Stephen lay dead on the, um, the Middle Eastern sand. Why? Because Paul hated Jesus. So, that was his stance. One minute, the next second, Jesus was the Lord of his life. And he was but a slave, ready to do his bidding, ready to run at his command. What do you want me to do? You know, as a pastor in 2015, that is something that I would long to see. And I'm sure it's what we would all long to see. Someone walking through those doors, intent on destroying the name of Jesus, and walking out to tell others about his wonderful love and grace. What an amazing thing that would be. And if that would happen, as we go through the book of Romans, it would be absolutely wonderful. Lord, what do you want me to do? No, you dare not say that unless you mean it. It's not a casual remark, is it? You know, you're putting yourself, you're almost giving God a blank check, the blank check of your life. And just saying, fill in the details. I've signed it, I've dated it, you just fill in the details and do whatever you want to with me. You dare not say it unless you mean it. You dare not say it if you think that you will have any regrets in saying it. You know, when Paul said those now famous words, he lost possession of everything. Everything that he had. He had handed over to God. Lock, stock and barrel. And do you know God took him up on his offer. You know it puts my commitment to Christ in the shade. You can speak for yourself. You give everything to God. Why should we study this book of Romans? Why should we put so much stock on it? Why am I enthused enough to say that this book will change us? I tell you why. 
because it's a result of an act of obedience on behalf of Paul. He is being obedient to God. So our first point this morning, this evening, is the fact, or the first answer to our question, is that Romans has come because Paul obeyed God. That's the first thing. Secondly, Paul also designates himself as a called apostle. A called apostle. Now most Bibles tend to insert the words to be in in that sentence. Perhaps your Bible has got the words to be. I read it actually because my Bible has got the words uh, to be. Paul, uh, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. That's a way that so many of the Bibles in our day have uh, translated it, which could imply, of course, that Paul was to become an apostle sometime in the future, or perhaps he was an apostle in training. Those things could come uh, as a result of those. Put in the, if you notice in your Bible, if your Bible is uh, up front, it will have the words to be in italics, which means that they are not there, but put in to make uh, English it more English Englishy suitable, if that's, a, if that's a right term. I don't know if it is. But the Bible just says that Paul is a called apostle. He's not called an apostle, he's a called apostle. In other words, he is the real thing. He is the real thing. So when we look at this book, we have apostle, ap- ap- apostolic authority laying behind it. Now I said last week, if you remember, that he being a Jew from Tarsus made him the obvious choice to write this epistle so that he could speak to the situations or that affect both the Jewish world and the Gentile world. You know, and I said that this title makes him or this fact of him being a man from both worlds makes him the obvious choice to write the epistle. Because he can speak to both worlds. It's obvious that Paul was the man for the job because of who he was and where he came from. But this title, and a called apostle, makes him the most surprising choice. This most surprising choice. Why? Well, let's look to turn to Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, we can, if we are quiet enough and sneaky enough, we can eavesdrop a little on the church's first ever business meeting. Now, when I was in the bush and Pauline was in the mount, when it was a Sunday night and it was the business meeting, people who weren't members were asked to go into the vestry out of the way so that they wouldn't be privy to what the church was talking about. <coughs> you know, and we used to sit, sit by the door or stand by the door and eavesdrop a little to see what was going on. And that's what we're going to do now for, this, for a few moments. We're going to sit in the vestry because we've been told to get out and we're going to eavesdrop a little on the church's first ever business meeting which concerned itself with the demise of Judas and the choosing of his successor. This is what happens in this business meeting. For it is written in the book of Psalms, 
Let his dwelling, let Judas' dwelling place become desolate and let no one live in it. And let another take his office. Therefore these men who are accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabas whose name whose surname was Justus and Matthias. And they prayed and said you O Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven apostles. There was a choice between these two. You know, when you're reading it, as you go through it, you would thought that the first one would be chosen. Because, boy, didn't they go into detail with his name. Joseph called Barsabas, whose same name was Justus. You know, we've got a real potted history of this man, who he was, where he's come from, what his father's name is. Everything about him. And then it says, and Matthias. And you thought, Matthias, you were a no-hoper. You haven't even got your second name involved on, on the ballot sheet. But as we can see, it was Matthias who was chosen. Now notice, what I want you to notice in this statement are the credentials that were necessary for such an exalted office as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of his resurrection. In other words, an apostle had to be there at the beginning He had to see it through the three and a half years of Christ's ministry and he had to be a witness of the resurrection and the ascension. That's what gave him the credentials to be an apostle. He also had to be chosen by Christ. Those are the credentials that are necessary. Now we go back to our book and we see that Paul designates himself as a called apostle. And in one way we are saying that's the reason why we should read the book. And in another way we are saying that he is the most unsuitable person that you could ever imagine. Matthias was there at the beginning. He went through the life of the ministry of Christ. He was there at the end witnessing the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Paul most probably Never laid his eyes on Jesus. He wasn't there at the beginning. He didn't follow him through his three and a half years. Wasn't there at the death and resurrection of Christ. Wasn't even there at the ascension. And if we go by those rules that we're looking at there in Acts chapter 1. Then they would effectively rule out Paul from being an apostle and therefore having no authority and therefore we might as well throw the book of Romans into the bin ah but you say Ephesians 4 Ephesians 4 we can go to Ephesians 4 because there we have another way that Jesus chose his apostles and if he was to flick over now to Ephesians chapter 4 we can read these words 
But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the church, equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue and the fullness of Christ. Paul can fit, does fit, into this category. So, really speaking, when we look at the New Testament, we have two specific groups of apostles. One group was commissioned while Christ was on the earth. Peter, James, John, Matthew, Matthias, all these different people were commissioned by Christ while he was on the earth. He's not on the earth anymore. Therefore, that little group is limited. Limited. It's a limited addition of apostleship. No one else can join it. So that's one group commissioned by Christ while he was on the earth. Now we would call those the apostles of Christ. Now we've got another group coming from Ephesians chapter 4. These he didn't commission from the earth. He commissioned from his throne. This is now him in heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he decides and chooses men that he would designate as apostles. And we would call them the apostles of the church. Now that's limitless. Because he's actually still on the throne. And he is still able to choose apostles to his church. They are different types of apostles obviously. Because one was commissioned while he was on the earth. And the other was commissioned while he, was, while he is in heaven. So does this solve our problem with Paul? Is Paul an ascension gift apostle to the church? Would that give him the authority to write such a book as the book of Romans? You know what I suppose when we look at uh, the situation, that would make perfect sense. Because now we can say, well, Paul wrote this under the authority of being an apostle to the church. We could look up and say, well, this is obviously an ascension gift apostle to the church. But that would bring another problem with it. Because that group of apostles is limitless. That group of apostles, there are some on the earth even today. And if he is able to write with authority the book of Romans that you and I are going to spend years studying and hopefully the Lord changing us through him, then what is actually stopping others to write with such authority. Other ascension apostles, what's stopping them from doing so? Does that mean now that even today men can write such authoritative stuff as the book of Romans? Are we to expect God to tell us new things? Is there going to be new revelation now? Because if one apostle of, of the church can write something so authoritative well surely another one can so we've got a problem if we designate Paul as a, an ascension gift apostle 
we leave open, our, leave ourselves open to anybody who designates himself as such to write and tell us this is what God is saying. So we are in a bit of a problem. You know, and the, the, the thing is, I've been telling you this for quite a number of years, that there are such people in the world today who claim such authority. And in fact, some of them go further and say that they have an even greater authority than ever Paul, Peter, James, or any of them had. Because now they are the apostles of the end of the ages. That's what's being said in the church today. And loads of people are coming under the authority of such people, and I would say under the bondage of such people. So to designate Paul as an ascension apostle is to invite a dangerous precedent and to open the door to all types of heresy. So we back to the same problem. So what is the answer? Well, where do we go? We go back to our chapter that we read from the beginning. Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, as we read it tonight, it's obvious to me that this was a moment when Jesus himself returned to the earth for one, for the one and only time during the last 2,000 years. Now this isn't his second coming because if you remember when the disciples were looking up to heaven, Jesus having been received into the cloud, what did the angels say? Why are you standing looking up? Don't you know that he is going to come back in the same way? So if this was his second coming, Jesus would have come back down in the clouds. The same as he went back up. He didn't do that. He didn't do it. So we're not talking about the second coming. This was an invisible coming. Specifically to commission Paul. As an apostle of Christ. Lord... What do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now if you remember from the reading, God spoke to Ananias to go to Paul, who complained bitterly, of course. And, um, either, but then, of course, having God having explained everything to Ananias, uh, this is what he said. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles before kings and before the children of Israel and I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake if that's not a commission to apostleship then nothing is that's exactly the same as what he said to the uh, disciples on the Mount of Ascension. That he wants you to go into all the world. And preach the gospel to every creature. And be a witness to my resurrection. So it was exactly the same to Paul. Where was Jesus standing? He was standing on the earth. This isn't an Ascension gift. Apostleship that Christ gave to Paul. This is making him one of the elite. 
one of the limited few, an apostle of Christ, commissioned while Jesus was on the earth, albeit a special visit for this one person. And he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. The apostle to the Gentiles. And it's this incident that sets Paul apart from the ascension apostles of the church age and gives him the authority to speak for God as an apostle of Christ. Why should we study the book of Romans and put so much stock upon this book? I tell you why. Because it comes to us with the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ himself. Paul speaks for God. And then lastly, it brings us to our third designation that we find in this verse. Separated to the gospel of God. Separated to the gospel of God. Now, you might be happy to learn that I don't want to spend too much time on this because I really want to talk about the gospel in detail next time. But it's Paul's separation to such a task that I want to talk about as we bring our evening to a close tonight. Now the literal translation of this phrase would be having been separated. Having been separated. It's, what, it's in what is called the passive voice which means that this was done to Paul rather than Paul did it for himself. This was done to Paul. So let's read it like that again. Paul, a, a, bonds, a slave of Jesus Christ, a called apostle, having been separated to the gospel of God. Now, i got to be honest with you, I think ambition is brilliant. You know, I, I love to see ambition in people. I wish I had more ambition and more drive to get to done uh, what I have an ambition to do. You know, I think ambition is, is, is essential for us if we are to achieve anything worthwhile in life. I would say that in many parts of society today, and especially in deprived areas like our own, like the Rhondda Valley, ambition seems to have perished. And when you look around, I think the, the perishing or the, the demise of ambition is the root problem of an awful lot of the social problems that we have in this country today. Where, where third and fourth generation of uh, families have never worked and they are um, in receipt of benefits from the state and there is lots of depression and illness and obesity and everything like that has taken place. Why? Because ambition, and in our case I suppose in the Rwanda, has been stripped away from us through the, the lack of employment, through the demise of the, the collieries and uh, the, the great factories that we had here. No one seems to have any ambition at all. And we are seeing the results of it in our day. You know, as we saw last week, Paul's ambition, 
I said it's a good thing. It's a great thing. But Paul's ambition was to be the best Jew that ever lived. Do you know I'm glad he never realised his ambition? Because I would never have heard of him. You know, if you, can go out, if you went to a, a Jewish synagogue today and listened to the preachers, you know, they would preach of what Rabbi so-and-so said. Rabbi so-and-so said. Rabbi so-and-so said this. It's the, the Targums and all the rest of it. And they will tell you all about the great Jews uh, of the ages. And I don't know any of them. Well, I don't know many of them. And I wouldn't have known Paul. Rabbi Saul of Tarsus said this. It would be lost on me. Because I've got no interest in that. And I've got no means of sort of wanting to study it either. But it was Paul's ambition to be the best Jew. You know, if I'm put, the old Saul, let's call him the old Saul. If he was being quoted today in the synagogue in Cardiff, he would have been over the moon. Because that was his ambition. To be part of this body of truth brought to the world by the Jews. He worked towards such a, an exalted place. He studied harder, tells us in Galatians chapter 1. He studied harder than anyone else. Tells us in Philippians 3 that he deprived himself of more than anyone else in order to achieve this ambition, this goal of being the best Jew in all the world. Do you know that preaching the gospel and writing the book of Romans was never his ambition? Never his ambition at all. He didn't even enter his head to write such a book. Wouldn't have been able to understand what that book was about anyway. But someone chose him to write it. Someone separated him from his ambition. Ambition to be the best Jew. Until someone stepped in and spoiled it. Ruined it. His ambition lay in tatters at his feet. I wanted to be the best Jew. I wanted to be quoted in all the synagogues in 2015. That's what I wanted more than anything else. But someone has come. And separated him. And marked him out. As the one who would spread the good news of the gospel across the whole world. Across all the centuries of the church age. It wasn't his ambition. But it was God's ambition. I don't know if I should say God's got an ambition. Perhaps, you know, perhaps some people would criticize me for saying God's got an ambition. But that's how I would look at it. God's ambition was that Saul of Tarsus was going to write his gospel for him but he had an ambition of his own so the first thing God had to do was to separate him from that cut him off because that's the word means to sever sever him from that and mark him out as the one who would write the book of Romans a severing had taken place having been separated unto the gospel a seven. You know, it was a, it was a sad story in the, in the Daily Mirror today uh, to see a, a young girl called Victoria Balch, Balch, or whatever her name is, how they spell it. She was the girl who lost her leg in the crash in Alton Towers. You know, and in the, if you had the Daily Mirror today, you would see her now, and then you would see a picture of her, how she used to be. 
She was a beautiful young girl who could dance her socks off. You know, and it seems that as you read the story, as you looked at the pictures, this was her ambition. Ambition. But of course, that one ride on the, uh, the whatever it was in the Alton Towers, her dream of being a dancer, her ambition of dancing on the stage was whipped away in the twinkling of an eye. She had literally been severed from her ambition. And that's what this word means as we look at it tonight. This is what it implies. Paul had his plans. He had his ambitions. His life was all worked out before him. But someone came and severed him from all of that and brought him to this, the highest of callings. Listen to Acts again, chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Going on a little bit, it says, Immediately, 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 he preached the Christ in the synagogues. That he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said. Is not this you destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has come you uh, for that purpose. So that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. Can you see the severing had taken place. No longer was Paul hankering after being the best Jew. No longer was he wanting to see his name in lights. Being quoted by every rabbi ever since. That's gone. Immediately. Immediately. This man stood up. And his first words was. That Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is the Christ. And Paul increased all the more in strength. And confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus. Proving to them. That Jesus is the Christ. Why should we put study this book of Romans? Why should we put so much stock on it? Because it comes to us as a part of the sovereign purposes of God himself. Who himself changed the direction of one man called Saul of Tarsus and commissioned him to bear the name of Jesus Christ before Gentiles, before kings, and before Jews. And immediately he preached. He preached Christ. Severed from his old way. Severed from his old ambitions. Severed from the things that made him tick. Separated unto the gospel of Christ. Paul honored God. You know, with a CV like this, we are presented with a glorious book. We are presented with a book that has divine authority behind it. Divine authorship behind it. You know, this is the book that we all need to understand. We all need to study. We all need to live by. Because it's written by a man who obeyed God. It's written by a man who speaks for God. 
It's written by a man who honoured God with this project. How dare we not study this book? How dare we not follow it through in our lives? How dare we ever think that we can obstruct the Spirit of God as we listen to, as we read, as we study such a book as the book of Romans? With such divine intervention, divine provision, a man who obeyed him, a man who speaks for him, and a man who honours him with his time and his intellect, intelligence, and his gifts. I pray that we would be the same. That we would obey God and study this book and show ourselves approved. That we would speak for God as we allow this word to go into us, through us, and out into the world. And as we honour God with the study of and the lifestyle of what the book of Romans would tell us. I pray that as we go through this uh, book over years to come, that we will understand that we are doing so, not because it's a decent academic uh, per, uh, pursuit, but it's the words of God for us in our time and in our life. For Jesus' sake.